Magazines and Monsters, episode 34, Rodan from 1956 with Luke Giaconetti. Monster of is a skyscraper. When he moves, the whole earth quivers and quakes, and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. Supersonic jets cannot catch him. Rockets cannot stop him. Armored tanks are helpless before him. Even guided missiles are powerless. See Rodin destroy a modern city, leveling it to the earth with a killing airstream of his mighty wings. Nothing can stop him. Nothing escapes this monstrous beast of evil. Hey everybody, Billy D, aka Doc Strange here, back with another episode of the show. And this is going to be a really good show for two reasons. Number one, I have a great guest. And number two, it's a film and a genre I have been looking forward to talking about for a long time. Uh, even in the infancy of me uh, brainstorming about uh, having my own show, I thought to myself, I definitely want to talk uh, some Toho uh, down the road at some point and uh if you're going to talk about a kaiju film you have to have on luke jacanetti from the earth destruction directive how are you luke i am doing great bill thank you very much for having me on and for having me on to talk about not just not just a daikaiju film but to me one of the all-time great daikaiju films and a film that i put up i posit as one of the best science fiction films of its decade bar none country of origin bar anything one of the absolute best so thank you very much for having me on and bill why don't i think it's i think we we need to tell the the good listeners what is it that we're talking about here mm, we are going to be discussing rodan from 1956 mm. yes an all-time classic um you know we were we were talking a little bit before we went on the air rodan a very popular monster with daikaiju fans both here in the west and in in japan um, Rodan, of course, probably best known as being Godzilla's frenemy, right? <laughs> kind of like Mothra yeah. is, is his frenemy, but more of his ally. Rodan is his frenemy, more his rival, 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times they seem to be kind of rivals, but they'll always be the Earth monsters fighting the good fight. And, um, you know, there, there's, there's a, I'd say, a fair amount of people that don't necessarily give much thought to the original Rodan. But as I said, it is one of the finest giant monster films ever and one of the finest 19, uh, science fiction films of the 1950s. And uh, when you, I said, when you suggested this to me, I was, I was, I was uh, just grinning from ear to ear because I'm so excited to watch one of my favorite movies and have an excuse to throw it in and watch it again. Yeah, like we said too, you know, beforehand, uh, it seems like it's you know this one and like you mentioned, Mothra, they kind of you know their solo films kind of get pushed to the back burner a bit just because of the success of the Godzilla franchise. But this is like you said, this is an excellent movie, and you know, only two years after the you know original. Godzilla came out too, so it basically was the you know the second one in the you know Toho you know giant monster franchise, and it's it's definitely worthy of everything you praised on it. You know all the praise you lumped on it already. It's it's definitely <laughs> up there. People really need to give this one a look. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing about uh, Rodan is that, and and uh, just just a little background. So, like you said, th- this came out 1956, actually released in Japanese theaters December 26, 1956. Mm-hmm. So it's is two years after Gojira and a year after the film we know as Godzilla Raids Again, mm-hmm. right? And both of those films, you'll recall, were in black and white. So this was Toho, Toho's first color Daikaiju film. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a big deal, you know, going from black and yeah. white to color. Um, because they would, after this, they would only make one other Daikaiju film in black and white which was Varan and Varan is in black and white primarily because of its origins as a co-production with ABC television that it was going to be shown direct to TV and so that's why it was filmed mm. in um it wasn't filmed in widescreen and it was filmed in black and white and when ABC kind of backed out of it a little bit uh Toho is never one to waste something that they've already paid money for <laughs> uh f- finished the film out and released it just released it in black and white so there was a lot of risk here putting this movie out in color because mm-hmm. you know it just hadn't been done. And so the scale is is a bit larger. We get a lot more location shooting. We get uh, you know a, a larger um, you know just scope for the film as as awesome as Gojira is. And Gojira again is you know not taking anything away from it because it is. I mean, literally, it started the genre and it's the most important film in the genre. Mm-hmm. It's because it's, you know, there, there's less locations, there's less um, characters. That's all I'm saying, but they had to increase the scope. So the, Toho was on the upswing here. There was no formula yet for Daikaiju films that we would eventually see in the 60s, um, especially from Toho. A lot of the Godzilla films have elements that keep recurring here. You know, they were kind of just, you know, figuring it out as they went. You know, it's the, mm-hmm. you know, we'll try something different. And and it, it really does work very well. So many elements of this. The other thing I really like about this, which I'm excited to talk about, is that this is a science fiction film, of course, but this is also a horror film. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Toho would get away from that very quickly after this, get away from the idea of the Daikaiju film as a horror film. Mm-hmm. And they would do horror, but they would rarely do horror and Daikaiju together again. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yep, you're, you're right on the money there. And like you said, this one, it's just it, everything about it is, like you said, it had, you know, a good budget. It was in color, which, like you said, that was, you know, 
cost a lot of money to do back then. So it was a, a pretty big risk for them to do it in color. So they must have obviously had a lot of faith in what was going on with this film. But, you know, to, to even look at, uh, you know, the people behind the camera there, you know, directed by, you know, the man himself, Ishiro Honda. <laughs> yeah. 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 Honda was still the the guy doing this. Uh, he would uh, be the main director for all of their uh, Daikaiju films, with rare exception, uh, pretty much until 1969, until Attack All, Mon uh, All Monsters Attack, excuse me, which we know more here as Godzilla's Revenge. He mm -hmm. misses a couple of the Godzilla films in there because, um, like, for instance, he does, excuse me, he does uh, uh, you know, Frankenstein Conquers the World. Mm -hmm. And so he uh, and and King Kong escapes because he does King Kong escapes. He misses doing um, Son of Godzilla, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, but but you know, but he but it's it's a it's a laundry list of great movies. You know, Gojira, Half Human, The Mysterians, uh, Mothra, King Kong versus Godzilla, Matango, which is mm -hmm. when I talk about doing a horror movie. Matango <laughs> is one of the strange. There, what's amazing about Matango is. You can look at Matango from 1963 and then look at the popular themes of Japanese horror, of J-horror, from mm -hmm. any era after that, and they all come back to Matango, which is yeah. incredible. That one's yeah. crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, Mothra vs. Godzilla, considered by many to be the best uh, Godzilla franchise film ever. Uh, I mentioned um, Frankenstein Conquers the World and its sequel, War of the Gargantuas, possibly mm -hmm. one of, possibly the most popular monster movie out of Japan ever not to star Godzilla, yeah. you know? And uh, all the way through Destroy All Monsters and then, like I said, uh, All Monsters Attack. And and even, even uh, you know, all the way at the end, Terra Mecha Godzilla. So, yeah. you know, Honda at this point, I mean, he's, he's, he's firing in all cylinders here. And he had not gotten to the point where later on, in, as we got into the 60s, he was kind of getting tired of doing this because he really believed in the the message of Gojira and wasn't mm -hmm. wholly on board with the idea of turning it into you know a franchise to make money. But he still went out there and made good movies. But here, uh, yeah, his as as my friend Professor Allen likes to say, he was at the height of his powers here for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no way. It's he he really was, and of course, you know, this film you know is kind of like a almost like a sort of, you know, dinosaur movie as well here, too. So that's something else it had going for it, too. I really like that oh, yeah. aspect of it. They really, you know, play that up big time as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I really love, uh, you know, and another name that's, you know, synonymous with uh, Japanese films, too. You know, our uh, special effects guy here, uh, Subaraya. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, big um, time. Not, and not only Eji Subaraya uh, doing the effects, we also have... In the Rodan suit, no other than none other than Haru Nakajima, who had mm. played Gojira and uh, would play Godzilla through all of the Showa films, uh, mm -hmm. or most all of the Showa films. I think there's, mm, there's a couple, like Son of Godzilla, I don't think he does. There's one or two others. Um, but he plays uh, Rodan, and he mm -hmm. also uh, plays one, uh, some Mega Neuron in this film as well. Um, so, yeah, the, the effects, again, just putting them in color lends that extra layer of complexity mm -hmm. i'm reminded of over a die they their first gamma film despite being made several years after this was shot in black and white yep when color had become the de facto standard and the this what i have always read is a die shot gamma 
um, which we can't know as Gamera the Invincible here in the States, mm-hmm. that they shot Gamera in black and white because they had never done a Daikaiju film before, and in black and white would just make things just a little less complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get, you know, make a film and figure out how to do it, and then worry about the color, which they do in the second film and then all the rest. So again, just moving from Subaraya from black and white into color, and a great job. And some first off, some fantastically designed monsters in this. Mm-hmm. Both the Rodan and the Mega Neuron are, are amazing. And uh, mm-hmm. Subaraya really does a great job of bringing them to life. And then, uh, you know, Nakajima, one of the greatest suit actors of all time, you know, doesn't, mm-hmm. it's it's not like we get, again, to the, the 60s where there's a lot of emotion, but there's some great um, suit acting in the, the kind of animalistic nature of the Rodan yeah. that we get to see, especially in the kind of the, the back half of this film with, I think is a underrated performance by Nakajima. <clears throat> yeah, you, yeah, Rodan looks great in this film. I think, you know, when you look at 1956, you know, again, the special effects compared to today were extremely limited, but the, the suit looks good when he's, you know, on the ground and smashing stuff and the military starts shooting at him and stuff like that. You know, we'll, we'll get to that part of the story, but it, it looks great. And, you know, the suit looks great. And like I said, Nakajima, that's, it's, you know, it's all credit to him, too, because, you know, a suit's just a suit without somebody in there making it look lifelike. And, you know, mm-hmm. again, Rodan looked great in this film. And again, it blows my mind that it was 1956. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. You know, I mean, just to think that that long ago they had something that looked that cool. Like, you know, obviously when I, you're a little kid and you see something like that, you're like, wow. And then sometimes, you know, you, you get a little bit older and you think, well, that's not that great looking. I watched this movie and I still thought that suit and like you said, the actor were great. I really did. Oh yeah, I mean this is. I mean it's it's this is the to me the best Rodan ever looked. I mean mm-hmm. I love his mm-hmm. Showa hero look, and I'm a, I do mark out for the MonsterVerse Rodan that we got in Godzilla King of the Monsters. But to me, when I picture Rodan, I picture Rodan from this film, and I always have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I actually you know I I want to say I'm one of the few people because I see people. Uh, a lot of people not uh, talk uh, highly of King of the Monsters, you know, the the recent one. But I actually enjoyed that film. And I thought all the monsters oh, looked yeah. pretty good. Yeah, you know, I thought the monsters looked great. But, you know, oh, again, yeah. all yeah. the technology you have today, they should look great. They better look great, especially for all the money they dump into these movies. Sky is literally the limit here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And But, yeah, like you said, out of all these, you know, Toho films, oh, this is for sure the best Rodan ever looked. And, you know, a lot of screen time here, obviously, too. So super super cool so well was there anybody else you wanted to mention from uh the uh you know behind the camera there i i do want to mention the screenwriter um credited mm-hmm. as takashi kimura kimura's real name was keoru mabuchi but he's mm-hmm. known to Daigaiju fans as takeshi kimura um so there were two main writers at toho for science fiction films kimura and then Shinichi Sekizawa. And Sekizawa is much more well-known. Sekizawa wrote the majority of the Godzilla series and the other films in the 60s. And his films are the ones that we tend to think of. King Kong vs. Godzilla, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, Monster Zero, uh, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, and so forth. So there's a lot of um, uh, Sekizawa-isms so to speak, <laughs> that end up in those films that end up recurring. The idea of a, uh, of an island where um, important events happen. Strange juices 
or strange fluids that are used to control monsters. The idea of monsters as weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. um, you know, the idea of monsters communicating. All of these things are things that Sekizawa used over and over again. So it became kind of his standards. Kimura yeah. did not have the same outlook that Sekizawa did. He was, um, his films were known for being a bit more grim, a bit more gloomy. Uh, later ones would contain a good deal of politics. Mm. Uh, his films in general were not the, um, you know, again, not that Sekizawa's films were, were popcorn, but they tended to be what we would think of more now as like a blockbuster type movie. Right. right? Whereas Kimura's were, he, he, he himself was a, a bit more dour of an individual. And so his work tended to reflect that. This was the first film that he was credited at at Toho. He would go on to, he also wrote The Mysterians, which was the next year. Mm. He wrote two of the mutant films, The H-Man and The Human Vapor. Oh, yeah. Which, again, they are, I mean, The H-Man is like a, yeah, again, they're they're not, they're a little bit different context because they're not giant monsters, but The H-Man especially, Human Vapor has a, uh, and both of them have like a gangster story going on in them as well. Um, he would also write The Last War, which is, this was the first of of that wave of what is called the panic movie. It's a Japanese version of a disaster movie. The mm. last footage from The Last War would show up over and over and over again in stock footage at Toho of cities being destroyed. Uh, the Last War is, is, is about the Third World War and about the end of the world in nuclear war. It's a very downbeat movie. Wow. Uh, and as I mentioned before, he did write Matongo. And <laughs> Matongo is, to me, is the, is the epitome of a Kimura um, screenplay in that it is, it, it's very, like I said, downbeat. It has a lot of horror aspects to it. And in the end, it's not really a happy ending. No. And that is kind of what we get here uh, <laughs> to a degree. So I, I, I like that. It's Kimura writing this and not Sekizawa because it also helps to differentiate Rodan. As I said, Rodan has a very strong vein of horror running through it. And as a horror fan, I grew, I have grown to really appreciate that. I never, as a kid, they're all just monster movies, right? You don't necessarily mm-hmm. think of the difference between science fiction and horror. Yeah. But as I got older, certain scenes in this are like, okay, that is straight up you know, 1956 horror movie stuff. And there's some scary stuff in here when you're, especially when I was a kid, there's a, there's a couple of scenes in here that are downright scary. I don't care who you are, you know? So (laughs) yeah. 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 You're not kidding. Yeah. The only other name I will mention of the crew is, um, uh, okay. I lied too. the music by Akira Ifakube, uh, Ifakube again, famous for, uh, doing the Godzilla series and most of the other, um, uh, Daikaiju films and science fiction films from Toho, very, very beloved composer. And mm-hmm. the, uh, the other name I will mention, the executive producer, Tomoyuki Tanaka, who produced every film in the Godzilla series until he, he passed away. So very familiar name to, uh, Toho fans to see Tomoyuki Tanaka as our, uh, producer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I just, yeah, want to mention too, that I watched the DVD I have is the American version and the Japanese version has, you know, a little longer of a running time and a couple more uh, things to it. And we, we'll get to that later after we you know, discuss the film itself. So uh, we won't uh, leave anybody hanging that, uh, you know, is a, a fan of that version, too. But, yeah, that's the DVD I have. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember where the heck I got it. But, yeah, it's the I think it's maybe about 10 minutes shorter than the Japanese version. But yeah. still, still good stuff. I love it, too, because <laughs> when you put the DVD in, 
<laughs> and the screen, it's almost like a zoom in shot and it starts to pull back and you hear these thunderous footsteps like boom, boom, boom. And then you see like a cityscape almost like on fire. And then you see Rodan and then Rodan comes walking up <laughs> in the yes. cityscape and it starts letting out that shriek. And it is really cool. It's like one of the coolest DVD intros, like, you know, until you get to the main screen there where you can, you know, select the scene selection or just play movie or whatever. That is really cool. You know, when it gets to that menu screen, I love that. Yeah, I want to say that was the Classics Media mm-hmm. uh, release. It's in, yep. um, it. the, the cover looks kind of like that menu mm-hmm. with Rodan yep. behind the cityscape. That was in a five-pack. It was some of the first Godzilla DVDs actually released here in the States. Um, mm-hmm. That was in the very late 90s, because I want to say I was in college. And I remember being so excited to buy it because it had King of the Monsters, I think Godzilla versus The Thing. Godzilla's Revenge, Terra Mechagodzilla, and Rodan, I want to say, is that box set. And that is, I, I have since, you know, moved past those, and I have the Classics Media and then the Criterions and some mm-hmm. other versions. And I've handed those off to some of my my uh, my friends and stuff to say, hey, you know, I've, I've got a newer version. I'll give you this one kind of thing. But, yeah, yeah got a great memories with that set, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really awesome. Like, I think I picked it up at, like, a discount store like a used store for like a dollar. So I was just like, Oh my gosh, a dollar for this. Like, you gotta be kidding. Like I was like a kid in a candy store when I see something like that. You know what I mean? I just go crazy even at, uh, you know, going on 47 years old. (laughs) Just like, Whoa. All right. You know, your eyes get real big. And then of course my wife, if she's with me, she's just like, really? And I'm like, yeah, Yeah. this is the coolest thing ever. She's like, I'll bet it is. (laughs) She's not a a sci-fi fan or a, like you said, no. a Daikaiju fan at all, but uh, that's okay. There's a I lot. There's a lot of spouses out there that put up with, you know, <laughs> Daikaiju fans watching uh, watching uh, miniature cities be demolished by uh, mm-hmm. by poor Haru Nakajima wearing you know 100 pounds of latex. But <laughs> God bless those spouses, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you for uh, putting up with me. Uh, my wife should be sainted. But uh, uh, all right. So why don't we move on to the cast here? So. Uh, you know, top billing, I guess, would be uh, Kenji Sahara, right? Yep, Kenji mm-hmm. Sahara, who plays uh, Shigeru. Um, Sahara would appear very frequently for Toho in the Showa period, but uh, I would say he's probably better known in the uh, Heisei movies in the 90s. He yeah. plays, um, he's, the, um, he's the Minister of Defense, and then later the Secretary of the UNGCC in hmm. several of the uh, the 90s films. So the 90s films, because they actually are in continuity with each other, you do have characters that recur like that. So that's what he's hmm. probably best known for. Mm-hmm. But um, I one of my favorite, I mean, besides Shigeru, which is my favorite role for uh, Kenji Sahara, he plays one of the bad guys in Mothra vs. Godzilla from 1964. You'll oh. remember the bad guys in that are the two evil businessmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is he's the main evil businessman and he is such a slimy jerk in that movie. <laughs> and and he absolutely gets his as well. So that's mm. uh, you know, um the performance of Shigeru, one thing that I, I found a note for this that really stood out is that he really impressed Ishiro Honda in that, you know, there's there's a sequence in this film where Shigeru has amnesia. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So supposedly the story goes that Sahara 
really wanted to put an authentic performance. So he went and did research on people that suffered from amnesia and what, like how they would behave and what kind of symptoms they would exhibit and all that. So all wow. of his performance during that, that segment of the film where Shigeru is uh, an amnesiac was based on actual research that he did. And like, yeah, like at one point he like threw himself into a fit and like smashed a table on the set and stuff, because that was, you know, something that he had studied that some amnesiacs would, would they would get so frustrated, they would go into a rage. So mm. that really impressed Honda, which is why Honda kept bringing him back in, in more movies, you know? Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Anybody that does that kind of research, you know, to, uh, you know, enhance the uh, performance they're going to give. You, you, you got to really, you know, give it to them. That's that's really awesome because they, they don't yeah. have to do that. You know, that's just stuff they're doing because they want to do a really good job. So, yeah, I'll, I'll pay, you know, yeah. a, a, to price for a movie ticket to see, see people like that anytime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, and then, oh, next up we have uh, one of my favorites, uh, Yumi Shik <laughs> Shirakawa. Mm. Now, I, I reckon, yeah, I recognize her from a couple of different movies, the Mysterians, the H-Man. I remember you, you know, yep. mentioned those earlier, too. I've seen those and those are really good. Yeah, she's pretty good. Yeah, she um, she actually would um, she moved into television more in the 60s, but she does appear in a few films for for Toho. I said mm -hmm. Rodan, the Mysterians and the H-Man all in a row, 56, mm -hmm. 57, 58. Uh, she is also in the very rarely seen mutant film called The Secret of the Telegian. Hmm. Um, yeah, I've never heard of I've, that one. I've never seen that one because it's never been available in the West that I'm aware of. Hmm. Um, she also would go on to appear in The Last War. And then she's also in Gorath. Gorath is an interesting film in that it is like mostly a disaster panic movie. But in the Japanese version, there's a monster at the very end. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah the, 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 yeah, the giant walrus uh, Maguma or Magma <laughs> wow. shows up and he looked so ridiculous that they had put him in there. Tomi, uh, Tanaka, Tomiyuki Tanaka said, we got to have a monster in this so we can sell it to the Americans. And then the American <laughs> distributors thought he looked so ridiculous they cut it out. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, man. Yeah, that's funny. I, yeah. I, yeah. That's, you know, you never can tell, right? So, uh, <laughs> but... Uh, I like Keo. She doesn't. Keo does not. What can I say? Sekizaka's scripts tended to have more for the female roles than Kimura's mm -hmm. scripts. And I like Keo. I like her as a character, but she doesn't have a ton to do in this movie. No, know? no, she really doesn't. This, this movie, it's it doesn't have. It only has a couple people that get a lot of focus throughout the entire movie and then at certain parts other people get you know a focus on them but there's really only a couple people on uh, characters that get focused you know from beginning to end here of the movie it's not a i don't want to say it's not a huge cast but it's not a huge cast where there's you know six seven eight characters that are you know really in depth and you know a lot about them yeah right yeah i mean what's uh who's up next the the doctor of paleontology the, <laughs> yes which is uh, so very, very well-known actor to the Godzilla series, Akihiko Harada, mm -hmm. um, who best known, he is Dr. Serizawa from Gojira. Mm -hmm. uh, here, he does not wear an eye patch. No. But he would, uh, <laughs> he would appear numerous times, a lot of times playing a doctor or a professor. Mm -hmm. uh, what's funny is he also plays a professor in Ultraman. 
in two oh, episodes. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so he, he appears uh, many times throughout the series. I'm also uh, really amused in um, in Ibra, Horror of the Deep, a Kit Godzilla versus a sea monster. He appears wearing an eye patch again. So I oh, thought that's that, funny. Was, that was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's Dr. Uh, in this. And uh, always good to see uh, Akihiko Harada. Again, not he has a, an important role, but he doesn't have the emotional core like mm-hmm. Kenji Sahara does as, as Shigeru. But a very yeah. important role because he's the one that kind of explains everything, as as mm-hmm. scientists do in Toho films. You know, science and the pursuit of truth. That's why all the heroes usually are a lot of the heroes in these movies are scientists or reporters. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. the pursuit of the truth is seen as noble. So uh, you know, so yeah, a good good role for for Harada and good to see him. And again, at this point, it wasn't that he was a monster guy. He was just one of Toho's players. You know, he'd appeared mm-hmm. in, in their movies. He was signed to their contract. So that he played Dr. Serizawa a couple of years earlier, you know, that was, that was you know, it was a good role, but it wasn't like, oh, my God, he was Dr. Serizawa, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was in a lot of stuff, too. I mean, when you look at his credits, it is just a monster-sized list of stuff he was in. And Oh, yeah. You know, like, like you said, it was just not only the kaiju films but everything under the sun too because he was like a contract guy for toho but yeah he was oh yeah oh my gosh everything even some tv but oh my gosh yeah he was he was in a ton of crap load of movies but i just read too that you know he died fairly young 56 only uh from lung yeah. cancer yeah yeah and actually it's it's um it's very it's it's sad of course to, that he passed so young but what's what's kind of odd from a a fan standpoint is that he was slated to return in 1984 in Return of Godzilla. Oh, the wow. Film that we know here as Godzilla 1985. There's a yep. character in that film, Dr. Hayashida, who is the, again, the scientist, mm-hmm. who is the one who, develop, who, who develops the, uh, it's the frequency generator that they use to move, that it like, generates the magnetic field that's similar to how the birds use. He's the main scientist in that. That was supposed to be Akihiko Harada. Wow. Um, but he had become very ill by that point and actually mm-hmm. passed away in um, July of 84 before Return of Godzilla was released. So that was supposed to be that, that would have it, it would have been from a fan standpoint, it would have been um, very nice to have him bookend. Yeah. And with the series in, um, you know, 54 and 84, mm-hmm. as it is, his last role in a Godzilla film was actually Terror of Mechagodzilla, which was the last Showa film. Yeah, where he plays Dr. Mafune. He plays the villain in in that film, which I always thought was great that he went from Serizawa to Mafune in in the Showa film. Yeah, that is pretty cool. But yeah, just a side note here: Godzilla 1985. That was the first uh, Godzilla film I had seen in uh, a theater. <laughs> oh, I saw that guy. My my aunt and uncle took me to see it. I can still remember going and thinking it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> you are you are way ahead of me because. Despite the fact that I was introduced to Godzilla via Godzilla King of the Monsters when I was four years old, I did not see a Godzilla film in a theater until Godzilla 2000. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. this was, I remember when this came, because I had watched uh, films like this when I was a little kid on television, you know, like regionally. You probably had them in New York where there was, you know, uh, usually wasn't like one of the more popular channels but there would be a channel and sometimes on like friday nights or saturday afternoon there'd be some you know mm-hmm. a horror host and they would have movies yeah and they used to show a lot of the the showa era 
you know, Toho, yeah. Toho films. And that's how I got introduced to them. And then when I found out probably from an advertisement on television, um, that there was going to be a new Godzilla film and it was going to be in the movies. I was like, you know, please, can I go? (laughs) Oh, I I remember Godzilla 1985 coming out and wanting to go see it in the theater, but we just didn't. And -hmm. we did get it on, on VHS very shortly after it was released. And I, I loved that movie as a kid and I still have a lot of affection for it. Mm -hmm. The warts and all for the American version. It was very, (laughs) it was very odd. The first time I watched return of Godzilla, the mm. actual Japanese one without the American inserts. It's it's a very different movie in a lot of ways. It's it's the same movie, but it's a very different movie. I'll just leave it at that, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's I can't remember the name of it, but there's a Facebook page that streams um, uh, Godzilla films like uh, all the time. I mean, just I shouldn't say Godzilla films, Japanese films. And that was the one of the first times I saw a lot of the Japanese versions of these films because you don't see them on television over here, really. You always right. just see the American versions. So unless you buy a DVD of a Japanese version, you know that's like subtitled or, or dubbed or whatever, you're you're never going to get that experience. But I saw you know streaming a couple of times uh, some films there, and that was one of them I saw. And like you said, it's it's a very different film when you you see the Japanese version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as as a lot of them are, you know, I shouldn't say yep. like very different, but there there usually are at least a couple of stark differences in in the and, Japanese version. Yeah, and this one does have some differences. I think, oh, on the whole, the American adaptation is a good representation of it. It's not vastly different, but there are some subtle things which which I will will mention as we go through. Okay, so anybody else you want to mention from the cast? I know we talked about Nakajima there as Rodan. That was a big one, too. Anyone else that yeah. catch your eye? There's a few others that, that pop up. They have in smaller roles. Um, Yoshibumi Tajima, he plays Izaki, who's the journalist. Again, mm. um, known for, for appearing in, in several other films. He's the other evil businessman in Mothra vs. Godzilla. <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> so, and he is also... Um, he he's in uh you know he, he again disappeared in a lot of different ones um i'm trying to th- um yeah but he yeah kumiyama president of happy enterprises that's the one that most people remember him from where he blows the smoke in in um oh I, is it kumi mizuno no it's not kumi mizuno is it he blows the smoke in the girl's face and all that and he's uh you know he, uh, yeah. he did a, he did return returning godzilla he was he was one of the one of the ministers talking to the uh, prime minister in that movie so yeah <laughs> yeah that, he that's, was, yeah that, go ahead it looks like he was one of those guys too that must have been a contract guy too because he did a lot of toho films yes absolutely that's and, and there's, that's a lot of that's a lot of the the cast is is names that you recognize not necessarily big names but a fair number of them but th- that yeah. i think that's kind of the uh those those are the ones i have some notes on mm-hmm. who else was there you were looking about oh i think that's about it i mean uh Fuyuki Murakami is there as a small role, and he was another guy uh, that his his career goes back from the 40s into the 90s, and he also um, appeared in some stuff for Akira Kurosawa, who's mm. the Toho's you know non science fiction guy that won awards, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's the one that's probably the most critically acclaimed guy for sure. You know, a lot of the things he yeah. did, you know, war films and things like that. Absolutely huge name. So and Honda was his second unit guy for on, on many films. Yeah. Yeah. I did see that when I was doing some research. Cause to me, they're just like two totally separate guys. I don't know why in my brain I have them separated. Like they did their own things, but yeah, I did see that, that he, you know, worked. they did work together on a couple of films. 
which is cool. So, all right, well, all right. So I guess we can uh, kind of get into it here. So yeah, like I said, I love that opening uh, title and credit sequence. That was really cool on the DVD with, you know, Rodan and all that stuff. And then even the, the film too, when the credits start rolling in the beginning there, it's very mysterious and very cool. So I did like that. And then you hear the, you know, the shriek in the background, which, you know, of course, at that point, you don't know what the heck's going on yet. But, you know, if you're, if you're a kid and you're watching this and you know there's going to be a big monster in this movie and you hear the shriek, you're like, whoa, that's got to be the monster. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, okay, so I'm just going to do a little synopsis here quick and then uh, we can uh, get right into the film. Sure. So the film begins with some footage of nuclear tests being conducted by the military. We then switch scenes to a mining village where the employees begin their workday. There is a feeling of unease as they make the journey underground. Some seismic activity occurs, and a shaft gets flooded. A safety expert is brought in, and they find a corpse of uh, Yoshi, one of the workers. His body is very cut up, as if it was attacked by some unknown creature and not just drowned. The next day, two miners and a policeman are killed in the mine while investigating this. The police and Dr. Kashiwagi discover there is an ancient species of larvae and they're supposed to be extinct that they're alive inside the mine and that's what's doing the killing an earthquake hits the area and soon after a air force pilot spots a ufo it's flying at supersonic speed and destroys the jet and kills the pilot more and more incidents are reported in asia the japanese self-defense force eventually discerns that there are two giant pterosaurs on the loose and wreaking havoc so okay why don't we start at the beginning here so i did like the uh you know a couple of minutes there where it was intro showing you know the the nuclear tests and stuff like that and thinking about it i mean this is only 11 years after you know the the american bombings there in japan so that's that's pretty wild yeah so these this was the first major change to the film for the american release Okay. Is the inclusion of that stock footage. And I love that stock mm-hmm. footage. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love the stock footage with the very serious narrator. Mm-hmm. You, you can almost picture what that guy looks like, but it's by hearing him talk. You know? <laughs> yeah. Probably probably some horn rim glasses, thin tie, you know, that kind of look. Crew cut. Um, <laughs> yeah. Probably probably like a like a beige suit somehow. But anyway. <laughs> um so that the stock footage, like I said, that that is the first change. And what's interesting is that they're specifically making a connection to atomic weapons and atomic testing mm-hmm. when that doesn't really exist in the Japanese version. Gotcha. You know, the Japanese version, it is the idea of, uh, you know, mining too deep and, you know, uh, ex- exploiting the earth that releases these monsters. Whereas here, this being 1957 in the U.S., we had to have some type of... Uh, atom bomb involved or atomic energy involved somehow yeah. um that the last bit of the stock footage where they drop the bomb on all the uh, the ships mm-hmm. that is that is without a doubt my favorite bit of like uh, i know mushroom cloud stock footage every time i see that <laughs> i'm like oh that's from rodan you know it's like it's not really from rodan but it's still from rodan you know <laughs> in your mind that's where it's from right <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's great Mm. And then, yeah, I like how they move into that mining village there, though. That's pretty cool. I like how they, you know, they try to interject some, you know, personalities to everybody. So everybody's not just, you know, that's on the set. there, kind of just like a, you know, a stock person that you don't care who they are or anything about them. You know, you kind of get to know their names and, you know, some of their, uh, you know, personal life there, too. I like that. 
Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the other things that's changed is that this film is edited much the same way that Godzilla Raids Again is, where we have a character who is now narrating the film, and they mm -hmm. become the the point of view character. In this case, it's Shigeru. Uh, mm -hmm. In the dub, he is played by Key Luke, um, you know, well-known character actor Key Luke, mm -hmm. um, but uh, who also did the, the the narration in Godzilla Raids Again, actually. Mm -hmm. But, um, so, but yeah, the, the little, the village life, I really like that whole thing where this is just a small mining village. You know, this is not Tokyo like it is in Gojira. You know, yeah. we do get to see Infant Island and Infant Island, not Infant Island, excuse me, Odo Island. Odo Island is, you know, a very, a much more kind of, I don't, don't want to say primitive, but it, it almost is sort of a primitive location. Whereas yeah. here, this is, this is just like a rural location. You get the feeling that. You know, there's that this this feels very real and very authentic for the mid 50s in Japan and yeah. the, the little conflicts, you know, that, you know, Yoshi and Goro get into a, a fist fight and all the men are uneasy because they all work in the mine. Everybody either works in the mine or they have a brother or a husband who works in the mine, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. or, or they work near the mine or they work with the mine. The, the mine is everything in the in the village. And so you're right. It it really we get an idea very quickly of what's going on. And you know Shigeru's narration, it's a it's definitely of the time. You know, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a a modern movie making technique. But first off, as a kid, I loved it because yeah. it really draws you in, like someone's telling you the story, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. and I think it holds up well because it's watching it now. It's like okay, yeah, I get what they're doing with this. It really is telling the story. But it helps that Key Luke is a good actor and is able to emote and not just, you know, not just read them uh, like he's reading it off a page. Yeah, absolutely. I like when films, even if it's not all the way throughout the entire film, just maybe a little bit at the beginning and end or even a, a spot in the middle there, too, where they have some narration to kind of, you know, keep things moving or maybe just quickly tell you something that, you know, they can't show because they didn't have the budget for it or it was too, you know too expensive or too difficult to try to tell you or show you. And they just kind of tell you a lot of, like you said, a lot of older movies have that and some newer ones do not, but you know, things are way different now. So I do enjoy that when there's a bit of a narration there, especially at the beginning and then even end. And there's a lot of sci-fi from the fifties and even into the sixties where you get a lot of that narration where they were trying to, you know, you know, uh, you know, not only relay what's going on in front of your eyes on the film itself, but even, you know, sometimes there was like a, a, a moral behind the uh, the film as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, the whole when they find Yoshi's body mm -hmm. and then they have the autopsy and then you have the the widow screaming. Oh, yeah. And the baby crying and all that. It's like that's some heavy stuff. You mm -hmm. know, that 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 brings me back. I talked I've talked about this many times. The, the to me, the most haunting thing ever in a Daikaiju movie is the very beginning of when I first saw it was as Godzilla King of the Monsters, but it's in the it's in there in Gojira too, mm -hmm. when it's the aftermath of the attack and you hear the kids all crying that yeah. are dying of radiation sickness. And it's like that's a very real emotion. And here, you know, this this guy went to work and died. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now we don't know that he died because, you know, some prehistoric insect killed him. We, you know, we, I, I work in an industry where safety is a big deal because there's stuff going on 
where you could not come back from work if you're not being safe, right? Mm -hmm. So that really struck a chord with me this time of, you know, Yoshi is is dead after going to work, and now his his widow and his kids are the ones that are gonna have to live with that. And it's mm -hmm. it's it's not it doesn't shy away from that. It's not saying, oh, this is just a monster movie for little kids. You know, that this is showing you again, that that's a horror element right there. Yeah. Right up front. And it's like, okay, that's that's really it it it's it stands out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when they bring Yoshi's body in there. He's pretty banged up looking, too. That's a pretty nasty looking scene there. And then they're going to clean it up, you know, for the doctor to look at it and everything like that. Like, that's pretty wild. And then, you know, we'll talk later. There's another scene where, you know, I said in my synopsis about a, a plane, you know, from one of the Air Force guys, you know, getting smashed. And, you know, there's a scene right after that plane gets <laughs> destroyed by Rodan where there's some guys in an office talking with a helmet there on their desk. And that's pretty nasty too. So this is, there is some heavier yeah. stuff in here. Yeah. It's just not for like, a, like you said, it's not necessarily like, Oh, let's let the little kids go see the giant, you know, monster jumping around like this. There's some pretty heavy stuff in this man. It was like, wow, I couldn't believe yeah. they did that. But so oh, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean the, the, I, I had mentioned some parts that are straight up scary. I don't care who you are. When the police officer and the two miners, Mm. tie themselves together and go into the flooded mine shaft mm -hmm. to find Goro because they think Goro has gone crazy and is hiding in the mine. <laughs> and they are dragged down into the water. It's like, nope, I'm done. Mm -hmm. not, not doing that. Thank you very much. And then the yeah. one guy manages to cut himself free and then we see something come and kill him. And it's like, again, that's pretty scary when you're four watching this, you know? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's well, even the scene when those guys, you know, the, the, the policeman and that other uh, miner are dragged under the water and they, yeah. they're like screaming because you can tell they're in pain that underneath the water, something's like, you know, stabbing at them, killing them, whatever, and then pulls them under like that. It, like you said, that's scary, especially if you're a little kid, you're watching that, you're yeah. thinking, yeah, OK, the next time we go to the beach, I don't think I'm going in the water. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't go into mines because of this movie, basically, you know, it's like, mm. not, I'm good. Um, the, the sound for the mega neuron we hear in that, that chittering kind yes. of screechy sort of sound. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to explain what that sound sounds like, but once you hear it, you, you know, oh, that's, that's gotta be an insect or a bug. That's even though I've never heard an insect really make a noise like that, they must, <laughs> right? Movies yeah. wouldn't lie to me. <laughs> at least at least the giant ones do <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, well you know what yeah. what's funny is that talking about giant insects you of course have to talk about the movie them mm -hmm. you know yes giant ants in the new mexico desert yeah. one of the sounds that is mixed together to make the sound the ants make is crickets the mm. the, the chirping of crickets and where yeah. i grew up in new york in the middle of the woods in the summer you could hear the ants from them basically if you went down to like the cul-de-sac of my house, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at dusk when the crickets were all out, it really sounded like them. So it's like they're giant, they're giant bugs everywhere. If you just know where to look, I guess. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And I, but I did like that too. How you know the movie? You know, like let's say you didn't see this when you were younger and you bought the DVD. You know that I have around like two thousand or whatever when it came out, and you see the cover, and it, you know if you only think, oh, Rodan, it's this you know giant pterosaur or pteranodon whatever you want to say that's cool too but when you really think about it there's a whole other you know monster in this film with these you know larvae or you know little insects or whatever i should say little insects because they're huge too 
that to me is really cool too. So you almost got like, you know, double the fun here for your money when you get to see this movie because, you know, you get more than one monster. Yeah, I mean, the Mega Neuron, it's like it's it's that could be its own movie. Yeah. You know, the idea of them digging into this mine too deeply and releasing, you know, these prehistoric insects. That's a movie right in of itself. You know, and and they mm. play that. Yeah. I mean, we don't see the Mega the Mega Neuron as far as we know for the first like 20 minutes or so of this 25 minutes or so of this movie, they are the threat. We we see the Mega mm-hmm. Neuron when it, when it crashes through Keo's house right at about mm-hmm. 15 minutes. And then from there, they organize the, the, they go down into the mine and they find the cave with them in it and all that. And Shigeru mm-hmm. crashes the coal car into it. So it's like, there's a little mini movie here. You could have ended the movie there, but you know, for Shigeru, things have to go from bad to worse, you know? So mm-hmm. <laughs> we can't, can't have yeah. him win that easily. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, yeah. No, the, I, I love the Mega Neuron. They would make a comeback in the Millennium films in mm. uh, Godzilla X, Godzilla X Megagirus or Megagirus. I, mm-hmm. I, I, the Japanese it always sounds more Megagirus to me. That's the hard G instead of the soft G. Um, so in that film, the Mega Neuron show up a swarm of them. They evolve into the winged Mega Neura. And then all of the winged Mega Nura merge together to form the gigantic Mega Jiris. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, I think I've seen that movie one time. Some of the yeah. ones from the 90s, 2000s, are, I, I've only seen maybe one time. I think I've yes. seen them all, but I think only maybe one time. I'm not as uh, well read on those. Yeah. The, the, main, the main takeaway for me from Godzilla x Mega Jiris is, you know, the tactical black hole is always a bad idea. You know, because that, that's the main story driver. We're going to make a black hole and suck Godzilla into it. So I can't possibly see how this is not going to work. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, bad things happen when you do crap like that. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, then they, uh, there's some really good scenes and some good scares too. I think when, you know, you know, the, those insects are killing people, like they come busting right into the house that one time and go after uh, uh, our buddy there, don't they? And is yeah. uh, yeah, they go after, I, they go after Kyo and Shigeru because Shigeru has gone to comfort Kyo because of her brother because her brother is Goro. Yeah, and the Mega Neuron just comes crashing right through the the tatami walls there, and it's like that yeah. that blew my mind. But first off, because I love that it's a again, it's not like in um, it's not like we're seeing in the city. This is a village, a small village house, right? Mm-hmm. So it has the tatami screens and stuff still, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah. it's very, when you're a kid in the very early eighties, that's really exotic, you mm-hmm. know, that's how they live in Japan, or at least they did live in Japan, you know, 30 years prior. You yeah. Know? Oh, I'm and, sure, yeah. And, but it, but by the same token, then you go the mega neuron. I mean, that's a, that's just a, that's, that's a suit that Hiro <laughs> <Aaron Nakajima laughs> crawling around in and he just keeps he can't see where he's going because he just crashes through pretty much everything which i think is great um <laughs> yeah of note what this is i i had never really noticed this but it's very amusing now when the mega neuron crashes through the wall it does not knock over Kyo's birdcage 
Oh. Because that bird, the bird's nest will play an important part in this movie. So we have to make sure don't hit the bird cage. We need those birds for later. Okay. Yep. Smash any other part of the set you'd like, just not that. <laughs> That's great. But yeah, I mean the mega neuron grabbing the guy on the uh, the the police officers on the on the hill. On the hill, crush yeah. with his claws. It's like again, yeah. it's it's not gruesome because it's fifty six, but it's pretty gruesome when your mind's filling in the details. Yeah, absolutely. It's you know, and then you see their dead bodies laying there all beat up looking at everything too. Like like you said, that's pretty wild for you. If you're a little kid, you see this. That's pretty wild stuff. Even if it was oh, yeah. 20, 30, 40 years later. Yeah, it's I mean it's all these horror elements. The Mega Neuron especially are very much a, a horror aspect to this film. And I think it works very much in its in its favor. It it really does generate that sense of dread, the idea of going down into this, you know deep dark dank mine and what you're going to find down there when you already know that there's horrors that have been unleashed what else is going to be down there Mm -hmm. yeah and then well we do eventually find that out because uh like you said uh shigeru he gets uh um you know his his he gets uh oh what 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 did we say happens to him he gets uh he can't remember anything in the cavern yep Mm -hmm. and eventually he is found wandering by the volcano Mm-hmm. where the cavern has let out and he has amnesia amnesia and yeah so yeah so they try to well the doctors are trying to jog his memory that's when the the sightings of the ufo begin mm-hmm. and at the 29 minute mark with one of the well first off i do want to say so the fighter pilots are in this film fly uh, f-86 saber jets which was you know uh, synonymous synonymous with showa era monster movies the F-86 Sabre jet was the backbone of the JASDF. Very, very popular playing the Sabre jet. Uh, very popular in the U.S. and to our allies. So to see the Sabre jet is like, that's that's a classic. You know, the, yeah. they would be used for all sorts of uh, effect shots over the years in the, in the 60s and 70s. And the Sabre jet was used in that period, too. It's not like it was like, oh, they got some, you know, something that was out of date. It was a very modern... Uh, thing in fact yeah between that and the um at the very end of the film when we have the honest john the uh the rock the missile launchers mm-hmm. both of those were you know well-known american armament of the time mm-hmm. and to the point that supposedly i've never seen this but supposedly there was um some like newspaper articles and stuff no but not news not newspaper articles like newspaper advertisements and stuff that mm-hmm. talked about the saber jet and the honest john and hyped those and their appearance in this film because they would be familiar to american audiences well that's interesting yeah but uh yeah and, hmm. and that, I'm, I'm trying to find I, i've never seen this but there's a link here in wikizilla where they have a screen capture of a of a you know, a newspaper ad that focuses on the saber jet and the honest <laughs> john so i thought that was that was cool um but uh so the the, the pilot in the saber jet gives chase and we don't know what this thing is but you know that it can maneuver at supersonic speed which was kind of unheard of by the in the 50s right yeah and it lead this is the thing that also blew my mind as a kid it the the ufo which we know to be rodan leaves a jet contrail behind it <laughs> yeah that is that is so cool yeah that's cool and, i was just like and when Whoa. you're a kid and you you know you're riding in the car with your mom whatever and you see the jet contrails you're like is that rodan up there 
<laughs> that's great yeah i'm yeah. surprised they did that but you know like you said if it's you know some flying around supersonic speed i guess they thought well that would just make sense too and it, so it was interesting because you know if you're a pilot you know you're gonna think that it's another you know jet out there exactly you're not gonna think it's some kind of monster flying around yeah um you know we do get a um a, a briefest of glimpses of rodan Mm-hmm. Right at the 29 minute mark, when it destroy it, it flies in, and we see it destroy the the saber the the saber jet. Mm-hmm. But that's it. We don't get to see very much of him at that point. Um, no, just, just a glimpse. Um, the thing I like about the whole UFO sequence is I love all the name checks because they they talk about that it was in Japanese airspace, but then they also they say that it's been the UFO was sighted in Peking, Manila, Rangoon. Singapore and Wake Island. Mm, it's like yeah. that is all over the Pacific, you know. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is, and they're they're mud. That how fast is this thing, and could there be more than one? Because it's being spotted so many different places. It's a little thing, but I always like when we get a little bit of international flavor on mm-hmm. a, on a Japanese film because a lot of Japanese films takes place in Japan, right? I mean, American yeah. films take place in America, but it it first off it speaks to the post-war Japanese ideal of, okay, we're not going to be isolationist anymore. We're going to be part of the global community, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. uh, Japan after, uh, I did a, um, I did a, a podcast with Tom Panneries where we talked about this and the idea of moving away from the, the more isolationist, uh, imperialist policies of the wartime yeah. to really wanting to be, you know, seen as a cooperative, you know, good, good international citizen. Mm-hmm. And so it's just little things like that. So the global community was important and it's reflected in the pop culture, but also by the same token, it also says that, okay, it puts the Rodan over Rodan's over as a global threat. They could literally strike anywhere because, you know, they're, they're able to hit different sides of the Pacific within minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, anywhere they choose to go, they could be a threat. Now, of course they end up in Japan, but, they theoretically could have, you know, hit Hawaii or they could have hit the Pacific yeah. coast of California. You know, it all mm-hmm. would have been you, you could have said they had a spotting, you know, on in, um, uh, you know, on, on I said the Pacific coast, uh, the Pacific coast highway. I would have believed it because they've already established how much they're covering in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really cool. I, I did like how for a while there, you know, the, the military had no clue what was really going on. So there was, you know, a good bit of mystery to it, you know, until they got a photograph where there was like a part of a wing and a, you know, Mm. one of the talons or something like that. And they started trying to figure it out at that point. But for a while there, it was, you know, they had no clue what was going on there. But like you said, after they, you know, had that first encounter and destroyed that one jet, you know, I guess somewhere, you know, in the wreckage, they found this, the pilot's helmet and they had it sitting on their desk and it's blood splattered all over it. (laughs) I was like, wow, holy crap, I can't believe they showed that. <laughs> it's like, hey, kids, he died. Yeah, his half his yeah. brain is on this helmet. It's like, geez, like, that's really nasty. <laughs> yeah. In in the same vein, the, the young couple on their honeymoon. Yeah. When they say that the volcano is going to erupt. And the the uh, the physicist says, like, well, I'll give you even. I'll let you good odds that if they say the volcano is going to erupt, people are going to go there, and sure enough, they do. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's it's a young couple 
And mm-hmm. this again gets into the horror aspects where taking the picture and she goes, you're taking a picture of me or the volcano. Well, I'll try to shoot both, you yeah. know, which is the ultimate guy answer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's like, absolutely. you're pretty, but when are we coming back to the volcano? Never, you know? So, um, <laughs> and, and so again, they see, they see Rodan. We don't see Rodan. No, but they are chased down by this, by at this point, still the UFO. And all mm-hmm. that we see is her shoe and his camera. Mm-hmm. And that again, that that that's kind of scary to me as a kid. That it's because it the implication it becomes clear that Rodan ate them. Yeah, you know? yeah, because they they and, even re, they re investigate it and then they say like whatever this is, you know, it's big enough that it, it snatched the two of them right off the ground. And I thought, holy yeah. crap, yeah, <laughs> right. And I love when they're when they're doing the investigation. The and just again, maybe maybe in case you forgot, this was a Japanese movie. The first thing they say. Could it could it have been a suicide? And it's like, <laughs> no, right. they were happy. Look at the pictures. You know, they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is kind of wild. I thought, what? I, this has got to be the first time I heard the word suicide was in this movie. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's not something that was like heavily talked about in films. No, but in but you know, again, different context, right? Different culture in Japan. You could have had that, you know. I'm not. I don't want to. I don't want to say anything insensitive. But if you had told me that a young couple went to the volcano and killed themselves, I'd be like, yeah, I can see that in a Japanese story, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but again, that 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 strikes to the the horror aspect of it again, and the idea of not just the mega neuron. The mega neuron are a giant monster per se, but Rodan is like a, a true daikaiju, right? Mm-hmm. Treating yeah. Rodan in a horror context where they are not just fleeing for their lives, but fleeing and then snatched up and eaten is, yeah. is pretty hard boiled, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you at no point really do they, you know, theorize, you know, why are they doing what they are doing? It's just like sheer terror. Cause they're like, we don't know why these things are here and they're doing what they're doing. We just want to know how to stop them. And, you know, right. like, uh, all the things they try to do, you know, bring in the military. Then, you know, once they figure out what's going on, it's just, it's a joke. It doesn't work, you know. So, you know, kind of mirrors Godzilla a little bit in that aspect, where you know the uh, the, you know, the giant monster and the military is just trying their best, and it's just, it's a joke. It's like you know, they they might as well be using a pea shooter. <laughs> yeah, they got nothing. Um, mm-hmm. I do. Um, that that leads us to I mentioned uh, Keo's birdcage. Mm, and yes. the the event that the triggering event for Shigeru getting his memory is the two is one of the eggs hatching. Note that there's two eggs mm-hmm. in the nest, but nothing happens by accident, right? But yep. the the little bird egg hatching brings Shigeru back to the cavern, and he sees the giant Rodan egg, and the egg hatches, and Rodan starts eating the mega neuron these these <laughs> giant insects that have terrorized this village and killed at least five people that we've seen mm-hmm. okay um in fact not like six people at least now that i'm thinking about it uh rodan yeah. picks them up and eats them when one bite like they're a little I, snack for him <laughs> they're a snack that's what my brother always says Megan, they're just a little snack but uh <laughs> it's I, the sense of scale is fantastic here because we know how big the mega neuron are because mm-hmm. they showed us mega, the mega neuron in context of, hum, of humans. And now Rodan is popping them in, in his mouth like they're, you know, salted peanuts. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And then he, and, Rodan just came out of an egg too, meaning it's a, it's like, like a baby. It's a youth. It's gonna grow and get even bigger. That's the scary part too. Oh yeah, that is is great. I the the egg <laughs> cracking and Rodan popping out is to me it's iconic. It's iconic imagery of of Rodan mm-hmm. hatching, and. The, th- this is another change. This part is a little bit of a change here where when they're theorizing how the Rodan came to be, um, the professor in the American one says that it's because of atomic testing, that atomic testing have cracked open the earth and allowed mm-hmm. water and heat to enter in. That is not attributed to atomic testing in the original. That is the idea of just simply digging into the earth's crust, mining too deep, exploiting the earth too much you know was what led to that so it doesn't have the atomic angle but in order again in in 1957 in the u.s the atomic angle was still very popular and hence the prologue and hence this i don't have a particular problem with that because there's to me you can easily no prize this and say well it's it's both these things right there's not Mm -hmm. saying that it wasn't in this particular case the mine but at the same time, there's not nothing saying that the atomic tests are not causing damage to to the Earth. So I'm okay with that. I'm I'm willing to accept both both uh, halves of that coin. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, what I mean, it's it's either both of them kind of together or separate. Uh, yeah, I'm fine with both of those things. You know, what I mean, it doesn't matter yeah. to me. Like I said, if, if they you can look at it both ways, or even just kind of smush them together and be like it was both of these things that makes total sense to me like you said 1950s sci-fi and even into the 60s you know think about comics that you know nuclear energy was like a catch-all for that's why you know some of these superheroes have their powers so it was still in the 60s it was that was that was it everybody was using that (laughs) Mm -hmm. yep for sure uh, then we got into the in the 70s and 80s and it was like toxic waste or uh Mm -hmm. You know, sometime an environmental thing. Mm-hmm. It was it was the things we were afraid of at the time, right? Yep. Yeah. Whatever was the hot button thing to to cause you know fear in a movie. That's you yep. know in in real life they were using it in movies too. Which hey, why not? It's gonna sell tickets. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So the when the um, the other major thing, one of the other major things that's changed here happens right after this, when they go to investigate, and they find the human bones at, um, at Mount Aso. Mm-hmm. Okay. That whole, that whole bit is kind of rearranged from the Japanese. So the, 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 the helicopter investigating and the JASDF attacking actually happens later on in the Japanese movie that okay. happens in response to the Rodans coming out the, in the Japanese film, the Rodans emerge unprovoked and go on their rampage in the american one the uh military attacks and then they come out Mm -hmm. and i kind of like the american one better in that sense because again it puts more of the blame on the humans Mm -hmm. than it does on the monsters and i'm always kind of in favor of that personally i think that hubris plays a big role in a daikaiju film Mm -hmm. Uh, but i can get the other thing too where it's again getting into the horror aspect where, okay, we don't feel, we feel a little bit of sympathy because they were attacked. We no longer feel that if they attack unprovoked. Correct. And that kind of fits with them earlier in the film where they have come out and have started eating people because, <laughs> well, we're monsters and that's what we do and we're hungry. 
And so it's like, okay, well now it's time to come out and attack again. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's an interesting change because to me, that's, that's, and again, it's, it's not like it's, oh my God, such a change. Like it, we got with either, you know, Godzilla King of the monsters or King Kong versus Godzilla. It's more subtle, but it certainly does kind of change the tone a bit. Yeah, and I do think you already had earlier in the film the mega neuron that were just basically like, yeah, we're just going to run around and kill people or, you know, for no reason or just for food or whatever. So I I, guess I agree with you. I do like it better that, you know, there was a, a reason for them to come out and get a little crazy, not just, you know, they just felt like coming out and being murderous. Yeah. Continuing with that scene, the second Rodan mm-hmm. um, appears much sooner in the American version. In the Japanese version, the second Rodan does not appear until the first Rodan has landed and has begun his attack on the city. So here, Shigeru says it has a mate almost. It's like it's like 30 seconds after the first Rodan comes out of the mountain. The second one does. Mm -hmm. And again, this is another change that I am. I believe this is probably just because this is what I grew up with. But I like this better. I like this idea that the two of them are mates and are always together. Uh, I, I think it works better having them show up so quickly than it does having the second one play a smaller role. And I'm, again, I may just be more prone to this because it's a story that I know, but I, I don't, I really liked that. I, I like, and I like the, um, the kind of, uh, the mirror aspect of this, you know, George Lucas would mm-hmm. say that it rhymes the idea that later in the, that, that, you know, Keo and Shigeru, are always together when Shigeru is, is amnesiac. Keo is with him all the time. And so now the two Rodans are with each other all the time. Mm. And later we'll see that even when it's extremely dangerous, Keo will not leave and will stay with Shigeru. Well, again, that is mirrored at the end of this film, at the end of the film with the, with the Rodans. So I yeah. like that more. I, I think that works better. I get the other one. It's more of a surprise when Rodan has landed and is halfway done destroying the city when the second one shows up. But again, personal preference. I like the American take better. Yeah, it was funny. Like, you know, I didn't think about it when I first saw this film, but you know, in a couple of rewatches and then just recently here, you know, to talk about the film on the show here, I watched it. And then, like you said, the guy's just like, Oh, look, there's a mate. And I'm like, how do you know it's a mate? How do you know? It's not like his brother, man. It's like, You you know, you're checking out its genitalia there or what, buddy? Like, what's going on here? They look exactly alike. Maybe it's just two brothers that are like, yep, we're just, you know, our mom had, you know, plopped our eggs down and we just hatched. We're two brothers. Hey, you know, they're mates. But, of course, the ending is, you know, a little bit more coincides with that theory. (laughs) Well, maybe they're mates like the English version, you know. He's my mate, you know. (laughs) Yep. Going to go destroy Fukuoka, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Could be. (laughs) But, yeah, I was like, how does that guy know they're not? Yeah brothers that's man. The, yeah for <laughs> sure man for sure uh, that that is the uh, one other thing from this scene that has changed in the u.s dub they attack the city of sasebo in okay. J- in japan they attacked us they attack fukaoka and gotcha. there is no one's quite sure why that has changed the speculation was that the king brothers dubbed it as sasebo because the U.S. had like a lot of their uh, diplomatic buildings and diplomatic uh, consulate staff were in Sasebo. And hmm. so it, they thought may, they, the theory is that, oh, well, maybe the King Brothers thought that's a name Americans might know. Um, it could be. The other, yeah, the other one I've heard is that 
they were concerned about the Amer- the uh, American dubbers mispronouncing Fukuoka, <laughs> saying something not so not so kosher. Uh, so, yeah, that that might be a better theory. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever city it is that they destroy, again, this is when I think of Rodan. This is what I think of. I think about this whole scene destroying the city, uh, blowing everything away. They would they would do this to great effect in a few years later in Mothra, where they they take it even to a higher degree of more things being blown away. Mm-hmm. They would do something in kind of a similar sort of con similar effect in a different context in um the um the not the war in space battle in outer space yeah where they have the alien invaders destroying cities by reversing gravity on them and the cities like <laughs> flying into the air um the uh but just the size and 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 uh, of some of the models when mm-hmm. we see Rodan standing on top of the store and then jumping down I mean that's not a that's not a a flying model that is Haru Nakajima on wires wearing that suit jumping down that gets an idea of the size of the miniature you know we yeah. like to talk about like Weta Weta workshop that you know they they did what was called the bigature where it was a very large scale miniature here's mm-hmm. Toho doing that you know 45 years earlier you know mm-hmm. yeah that and that is like, yeah. that is a, yeah that is a really good scene like you said to especially the far away shots, all that stuff looks great. You know, some of the close-ups on like the tanks and stuff like that, you can kind of be like, okay, you know, it looks like a toy, but Rodan looks so good. And those scenes of like smashing and destruction and stuff like that look really, really good. It's, it's, it's a pretty good scene. Oh yeah. It, it hangs together really well. Yeah. And even the composite shots where we've got multiple elements together, I think work well. The one I always remember, we see it twice where the one Rodan is on the ground in the foreground and he is he is uh, flapping his wings and then mm-hmm. breathing the, the heavy. Rodan in this film has a very poorly defined ability to apparently blow big gusts of air. Yeah, uh, it's never mentioned, but we do see it and it never shows up again. Mm-hmm. But while he that one is doing that, the other one is flying above the city. And so we get both of them in the same shot, which I really like too. That that was yeah. I don't know. Again, it shows the scale of how big these things are and how fast they are. Um, and the the other one, of course, is um, flying out of the lake when Rodan dives into the lake, mm-hmm. and then um, flies out of the lake. Which again, they're actually pulling Haru Nakajima on wires out of the lake. That's why he's moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the the bridge collapses, which is a great scene. Uh, oh, yeah. That scene. Uh, Haru Nakajima also almost drowned. Wow. Uh, when they had a wire break and he fell into the, the effects lift and he's got like 100 plus pounds on him and trying to fish him out of there. Luckily, the fact that he that, that suit had the big wings on it, it did mm-hmm. absorb most of the fall. So he was unhurt. Um, you know, uh, Nakajima, he, there's, some, there's a great documentary called Men in Suits mm-hmm. where it's him and uh, a bunch of other uh, Western suit actors talking about their experiences as a suit actor and he talks about some of the things he had to go through uh <laughs> under you know wearing all the wearing all these uh, these heavy costumes with all the yeah. hot hot uh, filming lights oh yeah and the one i always talk is there's one a great one where he talks about that working on ultraman sometimes the paint would not even be dry on the suit and he said sometimes when you see the monster staggering around that's not a choice that's just me trying to move with all the fumes <laughs> in the suit <laughs> <laughs> that's great i'll have to look for that yeah i've never seen that that sounds like a good one 
yeah, very good, very good documentary. But yeah, th- this this is really the showcase part. The end of this, you know, this is the the end of the second act, and it's like everything is is going down. And the Rodan, they are in they are in charge right now, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're really pissed off, and you know, tanks and guns and things like that are doing jack against them. So, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, we need a plan to do something, you know. Uh, out of the norm here because just lining up and shooting at them is doing nothing. Yeah. And I, I, I do yeah. like that in some of those films where it's like, you know, brute force does not work and they actually have to use their brain to try to concoct something, you know, and sometimes their plans are, you know, they're not, you know, the most uh, intricate things, but I do like that about a lot of these films that it takes them, you know, thinking and not just, you know, swinging a club or shooting a gun to figure out how to stop something and solve a problem. I like that. Yeah. That's always really cool. So yeah. Go ahead. So from there, you said they, they have the plan and mm-hmm. they are, the Rodan are back nesting at uh, Mount Aso mm-hmm. and they're going to attack them while they're resting. And it's like, yeah. it's not a very heroic plan, but it <laughs> is probably the right call. Now I do like the seismologist says that he goes, the volcano is a bigger danger. He goes, think about all the people, the women and the children. And it's like, that's not a bad point. I mean, you live in a country that's made up of volcanic islands, mm-hmm. you know, a volcano erupting pretty bad. But I do, they, they, you know, I do like the JSDF to say, we'll evacuate people. It's like, what are you saying, man? We're going to, we're going to get everybody out of there, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, they do show them bussing them out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they got it. It's a classic bit in the dichotomy of people running away, you know. <laughs> um, I, 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 this, this is again the, the, the scene where I was talking about where, where Keo comes to Shigeru and says she refuses to leave and she'll stay with Shigeru. And again, I, I do like the symmetry here that, that is played out. Mm-hmm. The, the final assault, uh, as, as you said earlier, you know, Eji Subaraya does the special effects here. And Subaraya, of course, the, the most beloved special effects guy for uh, Tokusatsu ever. Mm-hmm. The the director of special effects who would replace him was a man named Teriyushi Nakano. And Nakano does the special effects in the 70s Godzilla films, as well as a couple of the, the last ones from the 60s. His okay. work in the 70s especially is known for the fact that this man could blow some stuff up. He does incredibly <laughs> good explosions. And... As as great as Subaraya's work here is, part of me was like, man, imagine if Nakano had a chance to do this. Because this is like just seven minutes of straight explosions when they're yeah. attacking the, the volcano. Yeah. You know? You've got, like I said, the Honest John, the MGR-1 missile launcher. Yeah. With the firing the big... Uh, now they're, they're not nuclear weapons, at least. They're just no, regular no. conventional weapons here. But it's yeah. like, man, you know, Nakano could have like literally blown this out of the park. You know, pun intended here, but... Uh, <laughs> The, but that whole scene, again, because of the fact that we saw them, the Rodan ha- were provoked into attacking, mm-hmm. and that the, the two of them together were together almost immediately, you start to feel a little bad for them here when they're being attacked. You do, yeah. Yeah. And and again, I you do feel that in the Japanese one, too. But to me, it's a little bit less. And this is helped both by, again, those 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 little changes and the narration. And again, I know a lot of people don't really care for the narration, but I think the narration really adds something here. 
You know, yeah. it's it's a chance to kind of freeze a little bit to Garu and, you know, give us some insight, but also kind of manipulate us, us emotionally as viewers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a, like you said, you do start to feel sorry for the Rodans and, you know, the all the crazy missiles and everything like that. They start to really, you know, get the volcano going crazy. So it starts like spewing lava and fire everywhere. And one yep. of Rodan's tries to, you know, take off and gets hit with the fire and, you know, goes to the ground. And that's when you're really like, oh, man, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. you really feel bad there. Yeah. The the line in the narration that always stuck with me is that each had refused to live without the other. Mm-hmm. And that, again, it's it's a little melodramatic. But mm-hmm. as as a guy who saw 1933 King Kong before I even saw Godzilla King of the Monsters. So that's how young I was. King Kong is my dad's favorite film. And so we saw that Kong 33 mm. a lot as a kid. I love it. Yeah, it's one of my favorites and, too. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the one of the greatest movies ever made, you know, full stop there. But the idea of, oh no, it wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. And the idea of the humanization, the anthropomorphization of the monsters Mm-hmm. which Toho would lean very strongly into a few years down the road from this, but hadn't quite started doing yet here in 56 and then mm-hmm. 57, obviously for the American, but it, it makes you feel for them in a way that, you know, not necessarily was the intention, but you certainly do feel it. I always will recall that, you know, my, my mother, um, you know, we talked about, spouses all the moms out there that had to put up with with that, uh, <laughs> that love oh, yeah. giant monsters uh my mom i'm sure has seen um you know there's four of them godzilla king of the monsters Ghidorah the three-headed monster rodan and monster zero that she's seen dozens and dozens of times just because i was watching them as a little kid on, on day <laughs> yeah. um but but i always remember my mom saying that she always thought the end of this one was sad because the two monsters died together and they mm-hmm. wouldn't leave each other As Kiyo-chan turned to weep on my shoulder, I realized the Rodans were doomed. The heat, the gases, the bombardment added to their bewilderment. Like Mars in those rivers of fire, they seemed almost to welcome the agonies of death. And when, still calling to each other, one of them fell at last into the molten lava stream, the other still refused to save itself. The last of their kind, Masters of the air and earth, the strongest, swiftest creatures that ever breathed. Now they sank against the earth like weary children. Each had refused to live without the other, and so they were dying together. I wondered whether I, a 20th century man, could ever hope to die as well. It was as if something human were dying as the flames consumed them in a fiery holocaust, their last agony wails echoing in a mournful cry. We stood there staring with a strange fascination. All units return to base. Yes. I realize now that by the narrowest of margins, man had proved himself the stronger. But will it always be so? May not other and more terrible monsters even now be stirring in the darkness? And when at last they spring upon us, can we be certain we shall beat them back a second time? 
the answer lies in the future. Our fears for now had gone up in flame and smoke. So I really do like that ending. And as I've gotten older, you know, I've gotten, you know, some folks, some, I should even say be more general. Some guys, especially my age, as they get older, they get more cynical. I think I've become more of a romantic as I've gotten older. Uh, So I I do feel (laughs) for them and I feel for Shigeru and Kyo. He says the same thing. Could I, a 20th century man, hope to die as well? It's like, yikes. Yep. (laughs) Okay then. <laughs> yeah, pretty heavy stuff for a you know, it's very heavy stuff. Monster movie. movie. About, yeah, movie about pterodactyls eating people. But uh <laughs> no, but it's a great ending. And it you know, Kamora would go back to, you know, I don't know how to end this movie. Let's throw the monsters into a volcano. Uh he does that a couple of times. Uh, mm. does it here, and then famously does it in both Frankenstein conquers the world and War of the Gargantuas. Just throw them into a volcano when you don't know any better, you know. <laughs> <laughs> when in doubt, use a volcano, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's like the Superman thing. You know, I'm just going to throw it into the sun, you know, and let it sort itself out. <laughs> <laughs> so there was definitely something I wanted to ask you. So they both die here. So what is the explanation for the next time Rodan shows up in a Toho film? Is there anything or is it just like, yep, there's Rodan? Uh, it's pretty much, yep, there's Rodan. Now, I will say this. The next time Rodan shows up is in 1964 in Gator the Three-Headed Monster. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Rodan shows up out of a volcano in that film. So mm-hmm. it's generally much like Godzilla appears out of an iceberg in King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> and it's strongly implied that it's the same Godzilla from the end of um, from, you know, Godzilla from Godzilla raids again, that was frozen yeah. in ice, yeah, but yeah. they don't come out and say it. Uh-huh. It's implied that Avi, that one of the Rodan must have survived and was dormant inside the volcano before yeah. he emerged. And now we, they never make mention of the second Rodan mm-hmm. much like how, um, we never find out what happens to the second Mothra larva from mm. Mothra versus Godzilla. Yeah. The next time, but the next movie, there's only one and we never find out why. So, you know, the, the films have little to no continuity. It's very loose. You know, where they, the otaku were going to look at it and say, well, you know, actually, you know, I, I think, I think either whether you're talking in the context of like a, an otaku fanboy or like a Western fanboy. I think their favorite word is actually, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, so no, there is no explanation given as, as a kid. I was just, Oh, obviously one of them survived because he's in a volcano. It's a different volcano, but you know, Hey, <laughs> at the time I didn't really worry about it that much. It's, it's the same way that, uh, what is it in, um, in the universal mummy movies, Chorus. Uh, if it drowns in a swamp in New England and the next film pops up in Louisiana out of a yeah. swamp, it's like, yeah, they're all yep. connected. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, like you said, it's, there's not, they play, you know, fast and loose with uh, continuity when they have these films for sure. And it's, you know, they're not the first or the last to do that. But I just was wondering yeah. about that because I thought to myself, I don't know 
because I'm obviously not going to be, that's not something that's going to stick in my brain from when I was a kid, you know, because it was just, you know, that I wouldn't watch one of these films and uh, pay that close attention to some of the dialogue or, you know, narration that might have explained that. And I just thought to myself, well, Rodan obviously appeared after that. So how do they explain Rodan being yeah. back? <laughs> right. You know, that's something I always want to like, oh, I better ask about that because I thought I have no clue how they explain that. But, uh, well, you know, it's it's like they kill Godzilla and then another one just shows up. It's it's not mm-hmm. it's not even suggested to be the same one. It's oh, it's another one. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> this one's on an island fighting Angiris. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I thought he died out in the ocean with that oxygen destroyer. thing. No, <laughs> that, that, that was a guy. different one. A different one. Yeah. Yeah. This is Mrs. Godzilla. That was Mr. Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, well, this man. is the one that does have a kid. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a mommy. But all right. So, what about some of your favorite scenes in this one? You know, I know we've talked about a couple already. So, what are some of your favorite scenes? Oh well, like I said them uh, the guys going and being pulled into the mine. Mm. I love that. It's so like I said, just straight up horror. So wonderful. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The um the like I said the the mega neuron in the village I think is great. It's it's a little bit different from what we would see from Toho because it's it's a it's a giant monster but it's not a daikaiju it's like a human sized giant monster which we they do occasionally but you know I think that's just really really well done I said the sound design is fantastic in there as well um mm. the dog fight with the JASDF against Rodan before they attack Sasebo I really like that it's a great mix of stock footage and model footage now, mm-hmm. again, on, you know, DVD or whatever, you can look and see, it's like, okay, well, that plane has JASDF markings and that plane has USAF markings because <laughs> they're switching from a model to stock footage. But again, you're not, don't worry about that. Okay. Let it go. Just yeah. let it go. Okay. It's <laughs> yeah. JASDF. Just go with that. But that whole scene of where they're, they're chasing Rodan and dogfighting him and he is, without even touching them sometimes is able to destroy them because the, the amount of air he's displacing mm-hmm. is, you know, destroying key pe- uh, key components of the jets and crashing them. It's like, that's crazy. Yeah, that's that wild. Crazy. <laughs> I mean, that, that's like the explanation for the, uh, the jet contrails, right? Because mm-hmm. they come from, they can be produced by a change in the air pressure. Well, yeah. if you've got something that large moving that fast, it is going to drop the pressure, you know, with, uh, you know, pressure and velocity being a, you know, having to be a constant at a given, yeah. uh, for given uh, amount of fluid, it's like, okay, so I can buy that. So that I always, I always liked, uh, you know, and, and again, it made me think as a kid seeing the jet contrails, there mm-hmm. is, there is one shot during the attack on Sasebo where the, uh, the JSDF troops are being blown away and the one guy grabs the tree. Uh, that scene would get played over a couple of times in different movies. So every time I see the guy grab the tree, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Stock footage is something that a lot of companies yeah. would use, you know, just to oh, sure. you know, save, save a few bucks. Yep. And then, uh, I would say the, the very end where we see the, the Rodans being overcome by the heat and the smoke, mm-hmm. there is one bit where the, one of them is in the lava flow and the other one is above. And then it, drops and then like shoots back up for a second and then falls down Mm -hmm. believe it or not that was actually a happy accident 
because that was again a cable that broke. Oh, okay. Dropped the flying model down into the fire, and so they're yanking <laughs> it back up to try and get it out of the fire. But it really looks like it's in its death throes there. Yeah. And if I, I made reference to King Kong, I'm going to make reference to uh, uh, both Willis to not so much Willis O'Brien, but uh, Ray Harryhausen, Willis O'Brien's mm. uh, protege, who would uh, yep. go on and many would believe surpass him as a stop motion mm. animator. Yeah. Um, Harryhausen was really known for putting in the death throes of a creature that you mm-hmm. got a lot of character in seeing the little twitches as they right. were, uh, the life would extinguish. O'Brien does this as well. We see this with the dinosaurs in King Kong. Oh yeah. Uh, but, uh, that again, I always liked that the idea of in its death throes, it throws itself up, but still ends up down in the, in the lava flow dying with its mate. It's, it's, as I said, it's a happy accident, but it, it looks quite striking and memorable on screen. Yeah. That end scene really does. It's, it's a great ending, great ending scene to the movie. And like I said, tragic and kind of sad too, but you know, I think they, they actually, they nailed what they were going for with this one too, because, you know, they were trying to say, you know, you know, like we said in the beginning, you know, they have a message about nukes and, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, obviously the way Japan felt about that was a lot different than anybody else in the world at that time too. So it's very understandable that they were trying to, you know, send a message like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, all right. Well, any uh, closing thoughts here as we wrap up? Uh, if you haven't watched Rodan, go check it out. You can watch it free with ads on YouTube. If you're, you mm-hmm. know, if you don't want to uh, spend the money on it, um, the, it is a little bit harder to find the disc of it. Now the classics media double feature with war, of the gargantuas, I think is out of print. That's the one I have of it. Uh, but you can find VHS of it. You can find the older DVDs of it. It's out there. And, it's definitely worth watching. I mean, it's like giant monsters at all. There is no reason that you should not be, should not have seen Rodan. Um, it's unfortunately not available on prime video. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere, but, uh, yeah, go, go watch, uh, Rodan. If you got, if you haven't seen it, or if it's been a while since you've seen it, go find someplace and check it out because it just holds up so well. It is such a great, like I said, great, um, giant monster movie great science fiction movie and not a bad little horror movie in spots either so uh it it hits a lot of those genre buttons the effects are fantastic uh introduces one of the most beloved and popular monsters ever in in rodan and uh like i said it just does everything really well it's a it's a great great movie and uh, i i chose to do it back in the day on my podcast as episode 50 that's how much i thought of it that i gave it an anniversary number Mm -hmm. And I, and I wouldn't do it any other way. To me, it's everything that's good about Daikaiju exists in Rodan. Yeah, it's 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 up there with any other of the best. It's one that, like we said, you know, you don't get a lot of people that talk about it, especially in contrast to how much the Godzilla films get talked about. But, you know, like you and I said, we both love it. And it's, it's right up there. It's one of the best and one of the best, you know, even just straight up sci-fi movies of the 1950s, too. So it definitely Absolutely. deserves your attention. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, for sure. So, all right. So what else is going on with you? You know, Earth Destruction Directive. I know one of your uh, episodes you just had out recently was um, some of the Marvel comics of the Ultraman. So uh, what else is going on with that with you? 
yeah. So uh, um, Art Destruction Directive is a Daikaiju podcast. That is my main home mm-hmm. on the internet where I talk about all aspects of giant monsters from Japan and sometimes places, you know, not also from Japan. So, uh, you know, movies, TV shows, comic books, games, toys, all that stuff we'll cover. Um, yeah, recently did the first Marvel Ultraman miniseries, The Rise of Ultraman. Uh, mm-hmm. Coming up soon, you can expect to hear uh, my brother and I. And it may, I'm not sure exactly when both of you, but this episode and that episode are going to drop. But uh, we are going to be talking about the uh, the American movie Rampage with Dwayne mm. Johnson based on, right. the, uh, on the, the video game, which is definitely a giant monster film. There is no question that is a giant monster film. Mm-hmm. It just happens to not be Japanese. Um, but, uh, that we've got, um, some this year, uh, we're going to be featuring, uh, some other, um, some more Ultraman, some actual Ultraman, Ultraman episodes, possibly an Ultraman movie. We'll have some more Godzilla. Uh, we have one Showa movie left to cover, which is terror of Mechagodzilla. So you can expect that mm. one likely this year. Uh, and just like I said, I've got a lot of different stuff planned. So hopefully, uh, if you've enjoyed hearing me talk about Rodan, you'll please come check that out. You can find Earth Destruction Directive. It's part of the Two True Freaks podcast network, which can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also go to uh, any podcatcher, whether that's um, Apple Podcasts, uh, Podbean, whichever you prefer, and you can get your uh, get your Earth Destruction Directive episodes there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also am a co-host on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which is a horror podcast. I co-host that with my brother, Jason, the hair metal hero, Chris Tyler, and two true freaks, OG, Chris Honeywell. Uh, we cover all sorts of different horror movies there. Right now, we're working on a series, what I called Horror Rack Hanger On. And the Horror Rack Hangers On, these are VHS movies. These are movies you probably mm. would have seen in the horror section of your mom and pop video store back in the 80s. Uh, having a lot of fun covering uh, various of VHS movies. We did Sleepaway Camp. We did Chopping Mall, Slaughter (laughs) High, Dolls, Night of the Demons, Ghoulies, Prom Night 2. (laughs) Not Prom Night 1, but Prom Night 2. (laughs) Prom Night 2 was the VHS movie of that series. Uh, So that again, you can find that at twotruefreaks.com or on your favorite podcatcher. And I'm also a co-host of Get Back to the Wrestling Finally, there's a podcast on the internet about professional wrestling. <laughs> I co-host that with my brother and the hair metal hero. And uh, we don't now, you know, some some wrestling podcasts, they they watch the show on Monday and then complain about it on Tuesday. We're not quite that that up to speed. So we we uh, mostly just do retrospective and that kind of stuff. So uh, you can check that one out again at two or on your favorite podcatcher. So if any of those sound interesting, uh, please check them out. I would really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely uh, check those out for sure. And then uh, you are also uh, on Twitter. And uh, where are you at there? On Twitter, you can find me at the handle El Jacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And um, it's my Twitter's all ages, just like Earth Destruction Directive. So, uh, you know, nothing, nothing to be afraid of there. I'm also available on, uh, you can find Earth Destruction Directive on YouTube. Just search for Earth mm. Destruction Directive. Uh, I've recently started putting the show up on there. It's just the show right now. I don't, I'm planning on some other content, but right now it's just the, just mirroring the episodes. So, uh, like I do have a, um, one of my friends, he does pretty much everything, does his streaming and all his stuff 
through his PlayStation. So he listens to the show instead of on a podcatcher, listens to it on YouTube. So uh, it is very much appreciated if you want to check that out. And uh, I'm also on Facebook. If anybody out there still uses Facebook, uh, it's uh, Luke EDD, Luke Earth Destruction Directive. So that's uh, if you if you really want to come uh, find me on Facebook and see me wishing people happy birthday. But, uh, you know, that, that's where you can find me out there. And so if I want to reach out, I'll, I'd love to hear from listeners and talk giant monsters. Yep, absolutely. And then uh, you're also, like you said, wrestling or comic books, too. You know, you're always in the conversation yep. there. I think the last time you were on the show here with me was when we were talking about uh, War Comics Month back in November. So that's that's definitely that's something right. you're we yep, were. all about, yeah. too. Yep. Yep. Talk about comics and, you know, have a good time on there. So, yeah, definitely give uh, Luke a follow on Twitter and uh, look up uh, his stuff on Two True Freaks. Yeah, I'm a big the only time I watch YouTube is when I come home from work and I put it on my TV. Because when I'm working, most of the time I'm in the car listening to podcasts and YouTube really seems to suck the battery dry on my phone and you can't navigate away from YouTube and go to other apps on your phone. It'll just kill it. So that's why I'm just like, oh, man. So that's why I can't do too. I don't do too much YouTube except uh, when I'm at home. But I always use, you know, uh, Apple Podcasts. I have everything on there just set up to download right away. And that's how I try to listen to everything. Yeah, uh, I, I use I use Podbean. Same idea. Mm-hmm. My, I I cannot tell a lie. The majority of stuff I do on YouTube is watching Ultraman on the Subaraya channel. Gotcha. Uh, if you go to Subaraya's YouTube, mm-hmm. you can watch. There are several full series that you can watch free and legal on their YouTube page. Wow. Um, Ultraman Z, which uh, was the first Ultraman series I watched with my kids all the way through, which they mm-hmm. loved. They loved Ultraman Z. If you are new to Ultraman, go, you can go watch Ultraman Z and you will love it. The beats of Ultraman Z is that our Ultraman, Ultraman Z himself, and his human host are both kind of new to the gig. So it it plays well for new viewers because they're kind of new to it themselves. You mm. know? Yeah. Uh, and then the current series, which I think just aired its last episode, which is Ultraman Trigger, is also up there. And these are, I said, they're in Japanese with English subtitles and they're free to watch. You know, they just, they just have ads because they're on YouTube. And they also have on there what's called the Ultra Galaxy Fight series. These are little shorts. They're maybe nine to 11 minutes a piece. And they have no human characters, only uh, ultras and monsters. And they are just nonstop wow. action. And the, the the third one of those, the, the first one is called New Generation Heroes. The second is The Absolute Conspiracy. And the third is The Destined Crossroad. The third is still ongoing. But the first two, when they were done, they actually compiled them into a movie, into like a 70-minute movie, 70, 75-minute oh, cool. movie. And the cool thing about those, you can watch them in, in, in Japanese with subtitles or in English with an English voice cast. Hmm. So... A lot of good free Ultraman stuff out there if you go onto YouTube. So, yeah, that's, anytime you can watch something for free, that's awesome. And you were saying too about Rodan being on YouTube. There's a crap load of Toho films, you know, Godzilla films and stuff like that on YouTube right now. Just you know, like you said, there's ads, but so what? It's they're not that bad, and there's not a ton of them either. There's like no, it's I feel like it's definitely less ads than you would see yeah. if you watched on regular television. So, yeah, definitely, there's no excuse. Get out there and watch them. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, 
All right, Luke. So, yeah, thanks for joining me here. This was great, man. So we're going to have to brainstorm maybe uh, another uh, giant monster film here. I'm not sure what we can think of, but we'll try to brainstorm about something off mic here and uh, definitely talk about another one down the road. But I definitely want to thank you for uh, coming on to talk about Rodan. This was great, man. Oh, thank you very much for having me on, Bill. Like I said, any time to talk about uh, any giant monster movie. But you know, I said, twist my arm. Talk about one of my favorite movies of all time. I guess so. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you again for having me on. Uh, this is the second time I've been on, and it's been a blast both times, and I really appreciate it. And I hope that the listeners enjoy hearing my take on this stuff and, uh, you know, and enjoy our interactions talking about giant monsters. Because to me, that that's just a lot of fun. Talking about, about monsters is always my thing. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely, man. Love it. Thanks for coming on. And then uh, everybody stay tuned. I'll be back in a minute after a quick promo break here to wrap up the show. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Okay, everybody, that wraps up episode 34. Once again, I'd like to uh, thank Luke for coming on and talking some uh, kaiju films with me. Uh, plan is to have him come on and talk about some more. You know, I definitely want to squeeze in a couple of these films every uh, year at least and have Luke on and talk about them because uh, he's a good guy and he knows his stuff. So uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and uh, catch you next time. See ya.